All right, again, thanks to Bill for teaching last week. So just a quick review, this is our fourth week in the study of Philippians. We divided chapter 1 into 2, and one of the big things that we got out of chapter 1, which we're going to kind of revisit today, is this notion that whether Paul lives or he dies is inconsequential in him getting the job done that he is assigned to do. The concept that, hey, if I live, it's for the benefit of those whom I'm teaching. If I die, I get to go home and be with my Lord and my Savior forevermore. Then in the second chapter, what you would have covered last week, we talked about a number of different things. But one of the things that really jumped out to me that you talked about was uh, Epaphroditus. How he was uh, near unto death. And just recently in our meeting with Jim Michaels, he talked about Epaphroditus on one of his sermons at great length as well. At the very end of chapter 2, he's talking about this character and he says, Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And so as we have said in in our first three weeks of our time together... In our study of Philippians, Paul has a special relationship with this church. It's not that this is a perfect church, but this is a church that has a very close relationship with the apostle. And he will say in our study from next week, which we'll get to, Lord willing, that other churches who refused or were unable to help him, the church at Philippi was very much able to assist. And so chapter 3... And I thought this was interesting. What's the first word in chapter 3? Finally. Sometimes we as preachers, we'll say finally, and then we'll go on for another 20 or 30 minutes. But here we are in the second half of the book, at least as we divided it into the four chapters. But he says, finally, my brethren. And what what we want to do today is to talk about the text. I have four major applications with a number of other applications kind of sprinkled within the text. But I want us to get into chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We're going to pause there, even though there's a comma there, and so we're stopping mid-sentence. But I want us to stop there and just think about verses 1, 2, and 3 for just a moment. Notice he says, finally, my brethren. And we've talked about that word. Uh, a couple of different times in the course of our study of Philippians and some other sermon studies that we've done, thought it was interesting that Philippians is a relatively short book. It's only four chapters as we've divided it, as we see it being divided, but yet the term brethren is used on average twice each chapter. So there's a total of eight references to brethren being again referenced in the church to the church in Philippi. Paul believes these people to be his family. And uh, 
I've said this before, maybe I said this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about chapter 2 and we talking about brethren, but I want to revisit it again. There's nothing wrong with the fact that our spiritual brethren sometimes are closer than our physical brethren. And we ought to have that special relationship with each other, special enough that we care about each other that deeply. Uh, he says in verse 1, he says, what I want you to do is rejoice in the Lord. We are not surprised that he uh, brings up this concept of joy again. I, we've said that Paul is talking a lot about rejoicing. And in the church to Philippi, he talks about rejoicing an awful lot. Nine different times he uses the term rejoice, at least in the New King James Version of the text here. And then he says, for me to write the same things to you. So I'm writing the same things to you. I'm reminding you of the same things. Remember that that'll be one of our first big applications when we close in our study together today. But he says, these things are not tedious. The NIV says it's no trouble, but rather that it is safe for me to write these things to you. Um, I thought that was interesting. And so I, I wanted to give that some thought. And I thought, well, what is he talking about there? He says, I'm writing to you the same things, things that you've heard before, nothing new. David and I were talking about this a few weeks ago. There's only so many different ways of saying the same thing, and that's what the art of teaching and preaching and living our lives in God's service for is that we are trying to get the same message across to everybody at all times, and we're trying to be consistent in that message. But he says, it's not a troublesome thing. It's not tedious, but for you, it is safe. The NIV uses the word safeguard, and I like that word rather than just not tedious or no trouble, because rather than it being a, uh, a, a simple thing that we do in teaching, it is simple, but yet it is profound in that it is a safeguard against those who would be false teachers. Perhaps and probably what's going on here is the work of Judaizing teachers. We know that that was a major uh, issue that Paul had to address, for example, to the church at Galatia. But you kind of see some undertones in his letter to the church at Philippi that he's dealing with some false teachers as well. So my question and an early application with an obvious yes is, do we have to teach to be a safeguard against false teachers as well? And the answer is obviously yes. We have to be consistent in our teaching and even more so sometimes the more difficult thing for us to do is to be consistent in our examples. Because one of the things that the, the, the most challenging things and one of the most profound things that we can do is be consistent in our examples. I, I think I referenced this two weeks ago that moral values are, all, are more often caught than they are taught. So people pick up on our examples even though they may ignore our words. Any thoughts on that? And Michael is ready with the microphone if you have something to say that is more of, of length. Otherwise, we'll go on to verse 2. All right. Verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs and the evil workers. And then he makes reference to mutilation, which seems to me probably something to do with the concept of circumcision, especially since in verse 3, he basically gives commentary to verse 2. 
Sometimes Paul does that in the way that he writes. He makes a statement that may be a little bit, maybe, maybe ambiguous or a little bit, what's he talking about? And then he follows it up with a verse that says, here's what I mean by that. And it reminded me of his letter to the church at Colossae, which we will be studying in just a couple of weeks. But let's go ahead and read Colossians 2 in verse 11, which seems to me helps understand this. He says, in him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I thought it was interesting in that one verse, the word circumcision is used three times. And we know, as we'll get into our study of Colossians, why he was talking about that at length. Um, but I thought it was interesting to compare that with Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3. Because there were, as we know, individuals in the first century and later who were teaching that in order to be a faithful Christian, a follower of the way, or to do things the way that God really wanted them to do, you had to have aspects of the Jewish faith mixed in with your Christianity. And he here in verse 3 says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, and we rejoice, there it is again, nine times, in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. When he says we have no confidence in the flesh, what does that mean? Absolutely. Uh, uh, having to do with the old law, the old ways, the old covenant. And we know that whoever wrote Hebrews talks about that at length. Certainly Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, he talks about that. In his lengthy letter to the Christians at Rome, he talks about that concept as well. And so I think that, I think that uh, you are exactly correct there. All right, let's go ahead then to verse 4. Uh, and talk about that particular text. Verse 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. What's he saying there? He's saying that, hey, if there's anybody that has confidence in the old law, in the flesh, in the physical things, guess what? It's me. Because as he's going to delineate over the next three to four verses, he has lots of pieces of evidence as to how he was very righteous, very religious, very zealous, to use a word that we'll use here in just a moment. He said, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now let's read through verse 8. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. We'll stop there even though, again, we're stopping mid-sentence. We'll deal with verse 9 here in just a moment. He says, confidence more so. And that brought me to an early application. And that is, what do we have confidence in? What is it that we are strongly uh, aligned with? 
We don't struggle with Judaizing teachers typically today. That's not the struggle that we have. But what kind of struggles do we have where others suggest that we can have confidence in A, B, or C? And that may be kind of a, a broad question, but it's broad enough that we, I think we can apply it. What else could we have confidence in? If it's not in God, what could we have confidence in? Okay, absolutely. Paul here talks about his patriotism, which I'm gonna, I think I'm going to talk about here in just a second. Yeah, I put that in, in my list here. Um, we can have a lot of confidence in the fact that we are citizens of a very great country. And there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, have a sense of, of, uh, of gladness for being in a free country. We sometimes pray publicly on occasions like this. We are thankful for this country, thankful for the freedoms that we are granted. Nothing wrong with that at all. But can we have too much confidence in that? And the answer is absolutely yes. We'll get into that chapter 3, verse 20, when we get to the concept of our conversation is, or our citizenship is in heaven. So very good. We can, so we can have all of our confidence in our citizenship here. What else could we have confidence in as opposed to Jesus? The wisdom of the people that consider themselves wise. Okay. Wisdom of the world, wisdom of those who consider themselves wise. And it reminds me of our recent study of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, right? Absolutely. David, were you going to say something? Uh, family spiritual heritage. Family spiritual heritage. You know, my family has been members of the church for decades and decades and centuries and centuries. And therefore, I am confident in who I am. We are always to be cognizant of our own individual faithfulness to God and not that of, yeah, I've long said that when we get to the day of judgment, we won't be lined up by congregation or by families, right? It's us individually answering for the way that we live. So absolutely. Lots of different things that we could be confident in. And Paul says, I'm not going to have confidence in any of that. Instead, I'm going to be confident in Jesus Christ because all the other things, the wisdom of the world, family spiritual heritage, my political affiliation with the United States, whatever the case may be, he says, I'm going to count those things as rubbish. But before he does, he goes through a, a great length here to defend himself and say, look at me. I, if anybody, am a patriot. I am a Jew of Jews. In fact, he actually uses the phrase here. He says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And I thought about that and just wrote down in my notes, patriotism at its best. He's, he's, he's very much uh, enthralled in who he is and what he has done. He calls himself the big P word, right? He calls himself out to be a Pharisee. You can go and read Acts 23 and verse 6 if you want, where there's a reference to that. We are good Bible students. You are good Bible students. And you know that the Pharisees were a sect of Jewish leaders that prided themselves on being better than others. They were, according to Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus on about seven different occasions says, Woe unto you, you are, he uses the H word, and he calls them out to be hypocrites. Because they say one thing, but then they live their lives in a different way. And then in verse uh, 6, he says, Concerning zeal, 
persecuting the church. That tells me that zeal can be misguided. Acts 22 came to mind when I was uh, thinking about this particular passage. Acts 22 and verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way, and in my Bible, the word way is capitalized because it's talking about the faith. It's talking about Christianity. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also delivered letter, received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So no one could ever accuse Paul of not being zealous. Whatever he wanted to do or decided that he was going to do, he put his mind to it. He put his shoulder into it, and he worked hard at doing whatever it was that he was supposed to be doing. Someone once said, and I thought it was kind of an interesting point, that sometimes the people who are the most zealous in doing wrong, if they can turn their lives around, can be the most zealous in doing what is right. And we have likely met individuals who have at some point in their life, well, spent a greater part of their life living for self, living for Satan, and then they turn themselves around, they become Christians, and their zeal is now powerful in a good direction. And that was certainly the case with Saul of Tarsus, or as we know him, the Apostle Paul. He calls himself here in this text a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, he is a Pharisee. We know that zeal can be misguided. But I want to go to verse 7. Verse 7, he says, What things were gained to me, I have counted. And that's the word that I really kind of want to zero in on for the next few seconds here. I have counted loss for Christ. So is there a cost that we need to count in order to serve Christ? And it's a yes, it's an obvious yes. In fact, I put it in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through about verse 33 where Jesus talks about the man going out and building a tower must first uh, calculate the cost, or a king going to war must first consider whether or not he's going to be able to be successful in defeating the enemy. And he says, likewise, you must bear your cross and count the cost, Jesus says. So there is something to be said for understanding. And then the last thing here in verse 8, where he says, I count all things for the excellence of knowledge as rubbish, all things lost for the excellence of knowledge of Christ. What a beautiful terminology that is used by Paul. And then I, I came up with four key words. Paul suffered loss of not just some, but all things, and considered it to be trash or rubbish so that he could gain. That's a really beautiful statement that Paul is making. It's almost poetic in the way that he renders it there in verse 8. Any other, yeah, yeah Brother David over here, uh, Michael, and then anybody else have something that you wanted to add? And then Brother John uh, Grimmett when you're, when you're done there. I think I saw Paul's life as a champion Jew in which he was the sword taking life, and when he converted, he became the seed as spreading the word and bringing life towards Christ. That's a really good way of putting it. Thank you, David.
Uh, Brother John Grimmett. This confidence in the flesh he's talking about could be just confidence in the fact that he's a physically a Jew descendant of Abraham. And uh, just because of that, then I'm close to God and everything is great and I can take confidence in it. Back in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision which is of the heart and glory, and so on. I think it's Galatians 3 tells us that uh, we are sons of Abraham through faith. Yep. And so that's what to take the confidence in, not physically being a descendant of, of Abraham. Good. So as he's talking about circumcision of the heart, remember, as we talk, we've, we've talked a lot about the heart over the last two months, right? That circumcision is a physical mark. And so we are to physically mark our hearts, which really is kind of doesn't make sense for, to those who are not of the faith. But our hearts are to look different, are to be conducted differently. Um, I love that phrase that, that John pointed out from both Romans and from Galatians. Very good. Okay, let's go ahead and transition to the second third of chapter 3 and pick up in verse 9 in the text. Verse 9. And we're going to read through, uh, let's read through verse 10, maybe verse 11. Let's read through verse 11 here. He says, uh, all things count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and, verse 9, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10 is my favorite, well, it's not my favorite verse, it's, it's one of my favorite verses. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, that concept of attaining is, you may have a footnote in your Bible, arriving at or getting. Okay, so let's talk about this for just a moment here. First of all, Paul acknowledges that there are two types or kinds of righteousness, which... Uh, we've talked about a little bit already in, in verses 5 through 8, but I want to review that here and go to a passage in Romans here and just say two kinds of righteousness. What are they? One is it comes from the law. It comes from physical circumcision. It comes from like John talked about who my ancestors are or even, even though David was making application to the way that we can work with our family spiritual heritage today. Certainly, family spiritual heritage would have been important to an ancient Jew or to someone who was a Judaizing teacher. Or it comes from God by way of faith. And that's what we are concerned with. We are concerned with righteousness and the things that come from faith. Uh, very quickly, Romans chapter 10, I think verse 3 is what I wanted to read. Yes, for they... By the way, verse 2 is, is Romans chapter 10 is very familiar to us. I bear them witness that they may have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then in verse 3 of Romans 10, he says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness 
of God. Did you notice that the word righteousness is used three different times there? So a person can be righteous in his own eyes, either based on the Jewish faith, based on my family's spiritual heritage, based on my political affiliation as being a member, as being a citizen of the United States, all kinds of things that we could have confidence in, or we can have confidence in that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a citizen of heaven, as we'll get into in the very last uh, section of our study in just a few moments here. Verse 10, the reason that I like verse 10, I actually have a sermon just on verses 10, 11, and 12 that I did years and years ago. And I came across, uh, I can't remember what the ESV was, but I came across the NIV for verse 10, where he says, that I may know him, renders it, I want to know him. I want to know Christ. And I just think that's really beautiful. That idea, I want to know him. And maybe on your tombstone, we could say, knew him. Uh, the idea that I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know about him. I want to know the way that he conducted himself. I want to know the way that he treated others. Because the more that I know about Jesus, the more I know about the way that I should be living for him. And then he says in verse uh, 9 and 10, uh, 10, he says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know or experience, notice verse 10 here, the fellowship of his sufferings. So before we make that statement without really pondering what that means, we need to understand that Paul says, I am willing to suffer the way that Jesus suffered. And we know that based on secular history that Paul and Peter and James and John, they did suffer greatly as a result of their faith in the Lord. And I put up there chapter 1, verse 29, which is uh, a verse that we've referenced a couple of times. For to you it has been granted. It's a gift. It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So we know as Christians that there are sufferings associated with service. And that's okay. We are willing to suffer at, at the hands of others because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Anything else on the first 11 verses before we move on to the second half of the text here? All right. Okay, let's go ahead and do verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, there's the word brethren again. He says, brethren, kind of get your attention kind of thing. He says, I do not count myself to have apprehended or laid hold of, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So when we get into verses 12 through 14, these are, and I, I know I've said this a couple of times in our study, these are some of my favorite verses in Philippians. I love this passage. Verse 13 is probably my all-time favorite verse in the entire Bible. 
for reasons that I'll talk about here in just a second. But verses 12 through 14 says uh, the idea of arriving at my goal. Paul says, I'm not yet there. I'm working to get there, but I'm not yet there. One of the key applications before we get to our four final applications is that Christians should never get to a place where we are satisfied with our knowledge or our faithfulness to the Lord. Not that we should always be down on ourselves, but we ought never get to a place where we say, you know what, this is where I needed to be. I've gotten to where I, I've been struggling all my life. I finally have got there. Nothing wrong with benchmarks or making progressions to, to be better and to be uh, fuller of what God wants us to be. But we need to have a constant sense of moving toward renewed goals. And maybe your goal deals with your prayer life or your study life or your example or whatever the case may be. Once you get to that milestone or that benchmark, then you say, okay, I, I want to I do more. I want to grow further and, and do better. Uh, just thought that was kind of a, a point to be made. There are a number of different ways of looking at verse 13. There, and I, there are two that I've come across through the years. Uh, and either way you look at verse 13, the application is still the same. The idea of forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. The two main ways that people suggest that you can interpret that verse or understand that verse or put that verse into practice is one, that the successes of one's past shouldn't uh, get in the way of future work to do better. So the idea of saying, well, I have taught a lot of people. I have studied my Bible a lot. I have prayed a lot. Kind of sounds like the, the prayer in Luke chapter 18, doesn't it? Uh, and therefore, I don't need to worry about growing in the future. Paul's saying, don't let those successes in your past prevent you from moving forward. Because forget those successes. Keep working towards doing better and better and better moving forward. And that's one way to look at it. And that may very well be what Paul meant by that. Or the other way is looking at it that regrets shouldn't prevent future work for the better. And does Paul have regrets in his life? Absolutely. He has huge regrets. Do we have regrets in our lives? Most of us do. In fact, I would venture that all of us have regrets where we've said certain things that we shouldn't have said or we did certain things or we didn't do certain things or didn't say certain things that we should have said. So we look back on our lives now, I just, I feel bad about what I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever the case may be. Paul here could be saying, let that remain in the past. Don't carry your guilt moving forward. I, I like looking at both of them and using both of them to understand Philippians 3 verse 13. Because I think, certainly, there are other biblical passages and major biblical principles that attest to the dual application of chapter 3, verse 13, so that you can apply that either way. That's, I love verse 13 because I've met so many different people who have had these huge regrets in their lives. And you've met them too, people who say, I can never be a faithful child of God. I can never be a Christian because... Uh, I have too many things in my past where God wouldn't forgive me of those things. That's nonsense. And I, not nonsense in the sense that we would want to uh, make them feel bad for feeling that way, but it, 
That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that you can leave your regrets and your successes in the past, move forward to the future, and do better. And then in verse 14, he says, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to reach forward to the things which are ahead. And then verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward God in Christ Jesus. I put up on the screen Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, which is a passage that uh, I, I came across that seems to kind of correspond to this. He says, therefore, holy brethren, there's the word again, this time used by whoever wrote to the Christians who were uh, addressed here. He says, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So the same idea here. Press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then, uh, verse 15 and 16. He says, therefore, let us... As many as are mature, we're going to talk about that word mature here in just a second or two. Let as many of us as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So I thought about that. I thought, well, that's a... First of all, that's, that's the whole study in and of itself about mature mindsets. We are to be mature as Christians, and we are to be maturing, always trying to be better and to grow in our service to him. What does it mean to you to be a mature Christian? And we'll open that up for brief comments. What does it mean to be a mature Christian? And, and you, can, you can copy from what Paul says here. We're going to talk about one key thing here. But what does maturity as a Christian mean? Rightly dividing the truth. Rightly dividing the truth. Absolutely. An immature Christian would not rightly divide the word. And, and we may have all been there at some point where we were immature Christians, babes in Christ, and we looked at a scripture and we said, well, this is what it means without really delving into exactly what it means. Very good, Jason. Thank you. Anything else that it means to be a mature Christian? What did Paul say about a mature Christian there in, in verse 16? He said, walk by the same rule and be of the same mind. Same rule, same mind. thought that was an interesting way of kind of boiling down maturity into a number of different ways. He says, be of the same rule, be of the same mind. Are we to be unified as Christians? Absolutely. That is taught in Ephesians chapter 4. That's taught in a number of different passages where we are to be uh, synonymous with one another. doesn't mean that we are uh, clones of one another in the sense that we all have our, we, we have different backgrounds. We have different perspectives on life. We have different spiritual heritages that David talked about a few moments or so ago. But 
we need to understand that we, we are to be the same in lockstep when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the traditions that we follow that came from the apostles and from other inspired men that wrote uh, the book that we're reading from today. All right, let's go ahead then and spend our final uh, five, looks like we have seven minutes left here, uh, in verses 17 through 20. Let's go ahead and read through verse 1 of chapter 4, because that's where we're going to spend our time here. Brethren, join in following my example. Note that those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself." Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. All right. Uh, When you read those verses, the thing that jumps out to me is this idea of a pattern. He says in verse 17, you have us for a pattern. And we, in our men's study that we just concluded, we talked about that concept a lot last fall And just in the last five weeks, we've talked about the idea of a pattern quite a bit. There is a right and there is a wrong. There's a correct way of doing things and an incorrect way of doing things. And I like what Jason said. When it comes to rightly dividing the word of the truth, that's the mark of a maturing Christian where we say, you know what? I want to understand the the gospel message as it was clearly intended for me. When I read verses 18... Through 19, where he talks about uh, that there were enemies of the cross, it reminds me of chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from selfish or from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition. So, whether that be Judaizing teachers, whether it be individuals who, rather than teaching genuinely the truth, teaching for their own financial gain, teaching for their own selfish ways, that is certainly something that we need to be cautious about as well. All right. Verse 20 is kind of the, uh, probably the the most well-known verse of the text where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. The King James Version and some of the older versions use the word conversation. And I like both words together because when you think about having a conversation, it's a two-way street. I'm having a conversation with you you're having a conversation with me. Citizenship is the idea of where I belong. And, and like uh, we talked about a few moments ago, our citizenship is in heaven and not on earth where it really belongs. And then the very last thing here, and then I'll open it up for comments and we'll do some quick applications in our final couple of moments here, is the idea of standing fast in the Lord. What does it mean to stand fast? Because he says, therefore, go back to verse 1, stand fast in the Lord. What does it mean to stand fast? Stand firm. Firm. Good. 
don't waver, right? Don't change. Be, there's a certain amount of stubbornness that should be associated with being a Christian. Now, we're not to be stubborn, obstinate people that set a bad example. But when it comes to the faith, when it comes to defending the truth, when it comes to, remember Philippians chapter 1 where he says, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, there's a stubbornness, unwavering, unwillingness to change when it comes to God's will for us. All right. Any other final comments before we get to our applications here and we'll wrap up here in the next? Uh, yes. All the way over to the far right or left as it may be. Verse 18 is really powerful to me, almost like a climax of what he's been trying to talk about these chapters building up. And he says it very directly here about enemies of the cross of Christ. It, it's hard to find enemies of the miracles of Jesus because those make you feel good. It's hard to find enemies of a lot of the teaching of Jesus that talks about helping people and doing good because we like that. But the cross is a big problem for everyone because it's it's not attractive to us it's not what we would choose for ourselves and it's what he seems to be trying to talk about so often that suffering's a gift in chapter one chapter two that jesus didn't consider equality with god something he had to hold on to mm -hmm. but he set his face to the cross chapter three he said if i can partake in the suffering i can know him that's my path to resurrection and I think that's a lot of the mature mindset is that the cross, obedience to that extent is what lets us know Christ. It's our path to being transformed. And he's, he says, I'm writing with tears that people are struggling about this because we have to grasp that, the extent, and get comfortable, stay with the Lord, stand fast all the way to the cross to really reap those benefits. And it's... That's really that's a challenge. That's a big part of maturity, I think. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. That's wonderful. And I like the way you kind of brought us to chapter 1, 2, and 3, put us all together here. That's wonderful. All right. And our final uh, seconds here. Uh, these are the four applications that I've kind of highlighted throughout our study together. Number one, we need to be reminded of important things. That's not tedious. That's not troublesome, but it's valuable. So if you think, well, I've heard, I've heard that principle taught before in a sermon, well, hear it again, because <laughs> it's important. We need to make sure that we get these things well-grounded. Uh, number two, zeal in itself isn't enough to be pleasing to the Lord. Romans chapter uh, 10 talks about that. Number three, the one thing that really matters is righteousness. Everything is rubbish compared to it. So all the stuff that we focus on, and, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, whether it be our finances, whether it be our sports, whether it be our activities. Uh, those things are just rubbish compared to Jesus Christ the Lord. And then the last thing here that we kind of talked about in our last 10 minutes is Christianity is forward-looking. We are to be looking forward to the future. So we're a little bit over time. We'll go ahead and stop there. Next week, if you would, read through chapter 4, and uh, we'll begin uh, closing out Philippians. Thank you so much.